Well, as you can see, I'm not Johnny, and uh, we're praying for Johnny and his family as they battle some some sickness of their in their own household, and we are going to see the word preached this morning, and I say see on purpose because we're all going to read his word together and try and fathom what he has for us. Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11? And as you do that, I just want to say thank you for being here and uh, ask you for your prayers, even in the midst of this sermon, because uh, we've had a long week here at the church. It started Sunday evening, well, Sunday, last Sunday, and uh, we were here Sunday evening decorating for Christmas, and thank you for all of you who helped put up trees, string lights, whatever it was. And then this week we put on a play, we hosted a play for Heat, our Christian, one of the Christian co-ops that is around here, and it was called It's a Wonderful Life. Some of you have probably seen the uh, old movie. And it was, it was a great time, but it was a long last four days. And uh, so I basically lived here, slept at my house, and came back. Uh, and here I am about to preach a sermon in front of you, so I would appreciate your prayers. But as we come to the word, let us stand. Let us hear God's word read aloud, and we might be comforted by it. O oh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, and says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes. The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you now to open up our hearts, open up our eyes, and by your Spirit, convict us where we fall short according to your text. Lord, prophesy against our hearts where we have not found comfort in you, but we have found comfort in the world. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would just make yourself more real today and you would drive us to faithfulness. In Jesus' precious and holy name and by the power of the Spirit, amen. 
You may be seated. Our world presents many ways, many techniques, in fact, for us to find peace and to find comfort. It presents to us many different ideas, many different thoughts and convictions for us to find peace in. We'd call these immaterial things. But there is no more, this is no more true right now than in the sexual revolution. For everything that they seek is based on an idea of their own making. A desire that is not from God, but is a twisted desire to see themselves in a way that helps them find peace and find comfort. Uh, but we do this too. It's not just those who are seeking the sexual revolution to make headway in our culture, but we do this in, with ourselves. We constantly find comfort in our own ideas of ourselves. We find it in our own ideas of what should be happening. So much so that we judge the validity and the truthfulness of our ideas by how others judge them, by how the world receives them, or at least how successful we are at convincing them of their truthfulness. In fact, at this point in history, there are two dominant forms of thought, and you can trace them through many different avenues. The first dominant form of thought is the one that says this, all truth is truth as long as you believe it. As you truly believe it, it is truth. We call this postmodern thought. And these postmodernists, they believe that if they proclaim that everybody should find truth in what they really feel is truthful, then all will be well in the world. Similarly, in, uh, in a different way, the other side of the coin, have you? There's this other thought that forces us to believe their truth. And in fact, it cajoles you to thinking that if you don't believe the way that I believe, then you are mean and hateful, spiteful creature. A lot of this stems from what's called critical theory. And both are godless ideologies. Why is that? Because both rely on the human's creativity. On human creativity, they rely for their truthfulness. But they will find no peace in those ideas. The world also finds peace in other ways, uh, through material means. Their families, and we do this too, money, for with more money comes more or less stress. But I hate to break it to you, but more money, more problems. You even find it in our homes, in our workplaces, in the way, in, the, in our hobbies. You see, we as humanity, we're all wired to find peace and comfort for ourselves. We're all wired to find this just like Adam and Eve were wired to find this. And yet they were told by God in the garden that he is their peace. That if they just were to walk in his ways and they were walk with him and among him, amongst him, they would be full and comfort, comforted forever. But yet they tried to make themselves more comfortable. They sought another way to find pleasure, another way to find peace. First by taking the forbidden fruit and then by covering themselves with fig leaves. Both are wholly insufficient to find peace with God. For peace comes from his word. 
and no other place. In the same way, we try to find peace and comfort when our normal or our routine has been interrupted or even when it becomes under threat. This is so true that when hurricanes barrel down on us, what do we do? We run to the store, we fill up on cases of water, we fill up on food, but if that hurricane were to hit us actually directly, then it wouldn't matter anything for it, right? That food would be gone, the water would be wasted. And by the way, your tap works just fine before the hurricane comes. Or when life brings unexpected twists and turns like unexpected diagnoses. This is no more true in my own life, where I've heard multiple diagnoses of cancer, not for myself, but for my family members. I'm reminded of that today. But when these unexpected twists and turns come, what do we do? Very few of us actually fight them. Most of us run, and we run quickly to the most familiar, the most comfortable, and the most peaceful safe havens within our control. Notice it's within our control. Instead of running to God, who is controlling even the storm. So what do we do when those safe havens are even gone? That is the question that we must ask ourselves and must reflect upon through today. But this is where we find ourselves in Isaiah 40. In fact, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is constant judgment it's constant calling the people of Israel, specifically the southern kingdoms, to believe in God and not believe in the world, to find comfort in God's word, but not to find comfort anywhere else, not in Egypt, not Assyria, not Babylon. But Isaiah speaks to Judah the words of the Lord, prophesying against them for the first 38, 39 chapters. They have broken their covenant. They have failed God. And, and just, he asked for them to return, to trust God and God alone. So we need to ask ourselves, as we come to chapter 40, how might I have peace in these tumultuous times? The tumultuous times for the Israelites are very similar to ours, but our warfare is not with flesh and blood necessarily, but is with the spiritual realm. Our passage provides us four guides to peace and comfort. So if you're one to take notes, here's my outline. I'm going to give it to you off the top. Verses 1 and 2 call us to pursue God's comfort. Verses 1 and 2 pursue God's comfort. Verses 3 to 5 prepare for God's glorious return. Verses 6 to 8 persist in God's word. Persist in God's word. And 9 to 11 wrap up our passage by calling us to pasture in God's peace. But above all else, we must find this one unifying truth within our text and the one unifying truth of Isaiah. God's comforting word produces prevailing peace. I'm going to say it again. God's comforting word produces prevailing peace. So let us see from Isaiah 40 how this works out. It's the first guideline that we see, the first rule of peace that is found is found in verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her fight is finished. 
Her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, verse 1 begins with two commands. It may not look like that in your Bibles, but these are imperatives. Be comforted, the Lord's people. Be comforted, O Israel. He calls for his people to be comforted even in the midst of a tragic end that he has prophesied. They are to uh, expect the exact opposite, the exact opposite of Hezekiah's desires. Now, I haven't talked about Hezekiah, so here's Hezekiah. Verses 30, or, uh, chapter 36 to 39 kind of it breaks up the two books of Isaiah and it gives us a narrative and it shows us the, um, how Hezekiah was actually a pretty decent king. He, his struggles with Assyria and Babylon come to kind of a, an end point with, with Assyria, with God literally killing hundreds of thousands of them at the midst, in, their, in the midst of Jerusalem. But while he was a decent king, he was no David, nor was he a Solomon, but he was more like a Saul. And this could not be more clear, but the, at the end of chapter 39, so if you look just above chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, God speaks through Isaiah telling Hezekiah that Babylon will come and he will judge the nations through Babylon and exile all of his possessions, Hezekiah's possessions, and God's people into a foreign world. This is a promise based on the blessing and curses that we see in Deuteronomy. For they have not held up their end of the covenant, which is just to love God and to tell the nations of his glory. But at the very end of the chapter, verse 8, you read this. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. It's good. It's a good thing that you have spoken these things. Now, what, what do we mean by it's a good thing that we are going to be exiled to Babylon? Well, Hezekiah has one thing and one thing alone, that he heard that this will happen. See, this is all pre-exile that this exile will come eventually, but it's not right now. And so he says this in his head, there will be peace and security in my days. See, he is not a good king. He is not a good king that cares for his people. In fact, he cares way more about himself and his own peace and security. But that just shows us that we cannot trust man and his ultimate motives. And only God can judge the heart. And in his judgment, he proclaims something that is unexpected. Comfort, comfort my people, for no man will save you, but I will save you. I will put an end to your warfare, and I will bring peace because I have pardoned your sins. For God alone, he is our covenant Lord. He is Yahweh, the Lord of all creation, and he cares for his people. He cares for them so much that he cares to bring them hope even when they're mourning, to give grace to them when they are weary and peace to them when they are troubled. So God, in the midst of proclaiming exile to Hezekiah and to the nation of Judah, also comes with a tender word of mercy to soothe their worries of them. And he says comfort. This first word of comfort this first proclamation that is cried for his people. 
is this, is that no sin will hinder God from delivering his people. No sin will hinder God from delivering his people. Hezekiah's sin is just an embodiment of Israel's sin. It's an embodiment of their selfish ideas and idolatry. For they must, they have been fighting against the nations, but that will be finished by God's hand. It'll be won by God and God Him alone. And that their sins that have caused this warfare, the sins that have brought this, this terrible, terrible, terrible exile upon them will be done away with, will be pardoned. For not even their sin can hinder God's comforting word. Notice, notice in verse 2, it says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly. We cannot miss this because we follow an utterly personal God. He's not some God that sits on the heavens and looks down and says, do what you want, reap what you sow. No, he still speaks comfort in the midst of crises. And through Isaiah and to our hearts, the same can be said to us also. We who are in Christ Jesus have nothing to fear, but everything to be comforted by in his word. We who love Jesus and his, have his abiding spirit have no fear of this world. So we look to the one who has pardoned our own sins and brought them upon himself, has rid us of the iniquity and the enemy of death. For in his tender mercies, God has called us by name into faith in Christ and not of our own selves, but that by the work of Christ, Jesus our Lord. For even our sin will not hinder our God from delivering us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it is important to realize that I am not saying this, that your sin does not matter. No, it still matters. It still is a point of repentance and a, show, a, a demonstration that you need Jesus even more today. So as you grow in the knowledge of God, grow in your repentance. As you grow in the knowledge of his holiness, look to him as just and justifier. For he has brought the sacrifice of Christ for you and for me. And he has promised that it will be enough to save you. And now this might sound strange to some of you. I, I, don't, I don't actually recognize everybody in the room. Uh, so this might sound strange to some of you, especially if you're an unbeliever. Because maybe you are here out of obligation. You said, Mom, I'll go at least one time during Christmas. Maybe you're here out of ob obligation and think God more like this, more like a great clockmaker, more what we would call a deist. Think that he has spun the world into existence and he's left it to its own devices. But this text utterly refutes that position because he speaks tenderly as a shepherd to his lambs. He speaks tenderly as a father to his children. Indeed, he is a personal God. And maybe you're here and you believe that God is purely vengeful and hateful. He is a wrathful God seeking to strike you with his lightning like Zeus. Zeus is a pitiful picture of what God could be. For God, by his word, upholds the world and he comforts his people in an utterly personal way. For he is good and he is merciful, abounding in love and steadfast in his promises. But we all must know 
and respond to this, that God has taken away the sins of the world and he has placed them on Christ in his first incarnation. And he had promises us that surely as your sins have been thrown from the east to west, that those of you who believe that he is coming again, have hope, have peace in that word, have comfort in that word, for no sin can hinder our God's comforting word. So then what must we do with this portion of our text? We must pursue God's comfort, God's ways of comfort. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you three, three things, three words. Repent, re- believe, repeat. Repent, believe, repeat. For the life of a Christian is about two things and two things only. Believing more about God and telling other people about him. But it, with that comes consequences. It comes consequences of, hey, if I know more about God, I know how much more sinful I am. How much holier he becomes to me is how much more real my sin is. So we must repent and believe that he is enough. For our sins have been pardoned in Christ, and that pardoning enables us to truly repent and believe in him as our only hope. But as we pursue God's comfort, first by repenting of our own belief, unbelief, then we must believe that Christ is our one comfort in life and death, and that there is no other that can comfort us. The second way Isaiah 40 answers this question of how might I have peace in this tumultuous times is that we must prepare for God's glorious return. How might I have peace? We focus on things that are not in front of us, but on the face of Christ in his second coming. See, verse 3 to 5 outlines this for us. The, the second voice proclaims that no physical barrier, no barrier of any type will hinder our God. Just as sin is nothing, neither is the physical creation that he has made. For it might be problems for us to scale mountains and go through valleys, just as it was for Israelites. For both were dangerous, thin. But this passage is so much more than just physical barriers. This famous passage, fulfilled by John the Baptist, he, who proclaimed and embodied this text in Mark, what we already read in Mark, takes all of Israel's physical obstacles and demonstrates Yahweh's power over them. See, even in the wanderings in the wilderness back in the Exodus, served Yahweh's purposes, revealed Yahweh's glory. So also they will demonstrate the glory of God once more as he tramples the mountains and hilltops, that he stands upon the waves and he says, peace in the middle of the storm. For no valley is low enough, nor mountain high enough to keep God from achieving his purposes of deliverance. Isaiah brings good tidings of great joy to Judah, even though their exile looms on the horizon. This was intended to comfort them, and it is intended to comfort us, that nothing of creation stands in our God's path. And even more so, why is it there? We have to ask, well, then why is he talking about these physical barriers? Why is he talking about these problems, these obstacles? 
Verse 5 tells us this. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Read, shall be revealed through it, through those obstacles. And all flesh shall, shall see it, the glory of the Lord, together. Why? The mouth of the Lord, the one who has spoken life and light into this world, has spoken it to be so. This is a promise of comfort for the people of Judah and to us, for no physical barrier will hinder God from revealing his glory. This is another word of comfort from God for our peace. Thus we must ask ourselves, how might I prepare for God's glorious return before, because we, we, we get in a plane and we fly over mountains. Uh, we take trains through valleys. We no longer have these physical hindrances. But this, the physical hindrances, the physical barriers are not our problem, but what is our problem? Since sin has been done away with, we have to ask ourselves this, what limits have you placed in your lives that impede gospel grace? Or another way of saying it, what, what limits have you placed on the gospel going forward in the nations, in your neighborhoods, and for your friends and family? One limit I can see as being a safe haven for you that might be taken away one day. Uh, just, you know, fact of life, hurricanes come. Our homes. How are we stewarding our homes to demonstrate God's hospitality to the spiritually dead and blind? Is your home a place that, by the way, is a gift from God, a place to display his gospel grace to others? Or is it a place that you find shelter in and hide in? Are you sharing meals with your neighbors? I realize this is hard in COVID. But are you bringing them meals? Are you sharing the good news with them in any way that you can? Because Christians have, again, two jobs in life, right? To know God and to make him known. It's not, fair, it's not enough to just know God. There's plenty who know God and don't make him known. For it is our job, as we will see, to make him known. Therefore, steward all that you have for Christ's sake, and that all flesh might see him in his glory. That is how we prepare for God's glorious return. Let nothing be a barrier for gospel proclamation, not your work, not your homes, not your families, not your money, not your friends. So we've covered these two points in verses one to two, that we should pursue God's comfort. We should prepare for his glorious return. Number three, verses six to eight, we should persist in God's word. The third message Isaiah brings is one of foundational importance. It's the one that he stands upon and the one that we must stand on also. He begins by stating, all flesh is grass. Remember Hezekiah? He said, it is good the word has spoken. Why? Because I will not experience the hardship of exile. He does not care about his people. All flesh is grass. It is fading and is fleeting. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. It fades as soon as it blooms. Its beauty is another, and this beauty aspect is another way to express life 
that life is fleeting. Our lives are fleeting. So fleeting that the same breath that sustains it is also the one that controls its demise. Notice verse 7, when the grass withers and the flower fades, it's when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. But this breath of God is not just a sustaining breath, but it is also the one that brings everything under submission. So understand this. No human may resist God's word. No human may resist God's word. Why? Because it is controlled, it is given life by, and it is brought to its demise by the same word that stands forever. This expression means that his judgment is also as sure as the life that he gives and graces us with. So the grass will wither and the flower will fade just like humanity in the face of the Almighty. This is not only because our God is omnipotent, he is, we're all all powerful, but because he is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. That is why we run to him, because there is none like him. There is no other that is immutable, or unchangeable, for we change day to day. I can tell you right now, I have more gray hair than I did even on Wednesday. The amount of stress that I've been under. But I need to look to our immutable God, the one who is unchanged and cannot change. We see this in verse 8, that the word of our God will stand forever. What a proclamation, what a comforting thing, that we have something to stand on that is so sure and mighty that his word will never change. Why? because he will never change. For his immutability comes from his self-sustaining perfection. And in his self-sustaining perfection, he has given us a self-sustaining word that will not change. It will not grow weary and it will not faint. For age to age, it stands the same. And because this, because of this truth, we confess that he is forever infallible, inerrant, And because he is forever infallible and inerrant, his word is infallible and inerrant. But this is not the only text that says this for those of you who are taking notes. Psalm 119, verse 89, verses 152, 160. We'll just say the whole Psalm of 119 is a testimony to the unchanging word of God. Also in Matthew 5, 18 and 24, chapter 24, verses 35, we They're all over the scriptures that God's word is the immutable word and infallible word that we must stand upon. For the word of man is completely infallible or completely fallible where God's will never change. In light of this, we must take faith in God's unchanging and forever word. We do this by persisting in God's word. Persisting in God's word. And now, I grew up Baptist. I am a Baptist. I like alliteration. Uh, I like assonance and all of the poetical terms that are there. So abide would also be a great word here, but it doesn't fit the P structure. Persist in God's word. Since man and his word is fallible, lean on the everlasting word. And when you do, you will understand that God's comforting word produces prevailing peace. For it is the only word that you can stand upon that will not change. And so how do we do this? We first spend daily time, daily time reading and meditating on the Bible. 
which is his word. Now, one of my favorite and most influential theologians is ringing in my, hair, in my ear right now. Um, his name is Karl Barth. He believes that the word of God becomes the word of God when the man accepts it as word of God. Now, that might be a truncated and uh, small package, but God's word actually doesn't become the word of God when people believe it. It is the word of God forever. And so we must stand in that word daily, meditating on it forever. Number two, we should continually seek opportunities to pray and seek wisdom from God's people who abide in God's word. Continually seek opportunities to pray and seek wisdom from God's people. That requires fellowship, which is really hard during COVID, especially in the fears that we have in our world or maybe what other people might think. Let me encourage you. Find a time, find time to spend time with other Christians, other Christians in this room. Build one another up. Edify one another as you ought so that you might see God's glory even deeper today than before. So daily read the Bible, continually seek God's people out, and weekly participate in corporate worship of the saints. That's what we're doing here. I don't know if you noticed today, we were gathered today and at this like 10.30 hour to do one thing and one thing only, to make God known and to learn how to tell others about him, to make him known. For this weekly participation within the corporate body is what helps us understand that there is no word of man that will stand but the word of God will stand forever. And notice I said participate. This is not a one-way transaction, not even a sermon. It's not a monologue. This is you interacting with the word of Christ. And this is me, in this case, preaching it. But this is a participatory action. It is a participatory action in the singing, in the reading, in all of the aspects that we go about during our day. So we daily read the Bible, we continually seek God's people out, and we weekly participate in corporate worship. And this is how we persist in God's unchanging word, for no other word can fort his. And finally, in the last part of the answer of how might I have peace in these tumultuous times, is this. We must pasture in God's peace. There's that P again, pasture in God's peace. For pasturing God's peace looks twofold. In verse 9, Isaiah's instructions to Judah and to us is that we must proclaim the kingdom's arrival, that he has come, that we are heralds of the good news, those of us who are in Christ, and we have one thing and one duty alone in this life other than to know God is to make him known. So go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. For in the beholding of our God, you will see the true meaning of the kingdom of God. You will find it in Christ and Christ alone and his abiding word. For there is no reason to look to man to 
give you a comforting word, for God's comfort is sure and forever. His, no, no matter the creation boundaries, the barriers or sin barriers that you might have, no, we must shout out from the mountaintops that God is king and that Jesus is the way to everlasting peace. For God is king over all. Behold, you're a God. But this God, this God doesn't come just with any uh, willy-nilly purposes. No, he comes, look in verse 10, for him and himself. To reveal his glory, to give his word, to reveal himself. Because he already has his reward. It is himself and it is people. And his work has already been done and is coming to an end. But take heart that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He carries them close and he gently leads those who are young. For those of you who are seeking comfort in things of this world, there is no other comfort in the ideas or convictions that you might have, nor in the material things of this life. No, there is comfort only in our great shepherd, the one that Psalm 23 speaks of, the one that we proclaim when we give the good news, all broken and weary, come find rest in your Savior. For the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For God's comforting word produces prevailing peace and his people. Let us go to that word. Let us rest on him alone. Let us persist in, in pursue his word, his comfort, his peace. Would you pray with me?